Quick disclaimer, this week on the podcast, there's mentions of sexual assault. Please check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more information. This week on Myths and Legends, it's the story of a magical island in the Atlantic and the reason why you shouldn't trust the devil when it comes to dating. The creature this week is your nasty dish towel. Seriously, do laundry or else it will show you just how much it doesn't like being a nasty dish towel by rubbing itself in your face. This is Myths and Legends, episode 180, Power. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story is a legend set in the Azores, the islands in the middle of the Atlantic, which are part of Portugal. It's set in the 8th century AD, so at the very start of the Middle Ages. For some context, we're less than 100 years from the Viking Age. Rome is gone, fractured into dozens of smaller kingdoms mostly run by Germanic tribes that took down the empire. The Byzantine Empire is about to hit its golden age and what used to be the Eastern Roman Empire and... Most important to our story, the Islamic Umayyad Caliphate is about to hit the peak of its power throughout northern Africa and the Middle East. Even though today's story belongs to the folklore of the Azores, we aren't going to start on the islands. We're going to start in Portugal with an annoying little rich kid who is pretty literally the worst. You could get anything in this city if you had the money. And Genagio? Genagio had the money. He stood in an alleyway, talking to a worker caked in dirt. The one dragging a bag. Was it all here? The man nodded. He asked if Genagio wanted him to take it all the way to the university himself. It was a long walk through the streets, and the bag was heavy. The other physicians usually wanted it taken straight to the tables. Genagio didn't answer him as he counted out the money. You are going to the university, aren't you? Genagio paused when he arrived at the correct sum and then kept counting. He looked the worker in the eyes and handed him the gold. Genagio grabbed the sack, hefted it over his shoulder, and started his walk. When the man finished counting, he looked this way and that and said that the stranger could call him any time he wanted. Any time he needed a body. first time was a struggle, not the actual magic. Necromancy was surprisingly easy for Genagio to master. He had found the old tomes buried deep in the collections of one of his father's friends or the others, and soon he assembled knowledge which no person should ever possess. The first time a body came to life on his table, in half-garbled screams, Genagio's elation was quickly overmatched by his fear, fear of his father or his servants hearing the scuffle fear of this half-human creature he had just brought to life on the table. He tried to reason with it, but it was afraid. Genagio was able to get behind it, and with his arm wrapped around its neck, made sure it never felt fear again. The first time ended up being the only time. The next day, more tomes came in, from more rich men half a world away. From those tomes, Genagio assembled something far more interesting for an 18-year-old playboy. A few simple words, 
tailored to the right time and place and movement of the stars, and any woman he wanted was his. She would hear the words, and she would be completely under his power. She would wake up the next day, at a time and place of Genagio's choosing, and remembering nothing of the stranger with whom she spent the night. Genagio couldn't help himself. It was so easy, too easy. He would sit down across the table from a beautiful young woman, strike up a conversation, and in mere words, she would be his. He would order her to rise, and they would go back to his place. She would do whatever he wished. The next morning, he would tell her to go back home, go to sleep, and remember nothing. Genagio could have been careful. He could have worked his actual magic a few towns over, or gone traveling abroad. He knew spells to make wealth from nothing, but that was more work than simply asking his father, who had always found pain as some preferable to raising him. And Genagio was careful at first. At first, he would tell the young woman to meet him in an alley behind his house, in a cloak at midnight, knock thrice on his apartment door and all that. But after months of careful and fastidious planning for every woman, he slipped up. He accidentally had a woman follow him out of a party while her husband was away getting a drink. He slipped up, but nothing happened. Not for him, at least. The last he heard, the woman had been publicly beaten and condemned to a monastery. The man was some merchant. So even though he knew who Genagio was, it's not like he could do anything about it. So, Genagio relaxed a little bit. And then a bit more. He was challenging himself to see how brazen he could be when it came to seducing women, though that's not really the term for it. Could he lure a woman away from her peasant husband standing right next to her? Better yet, could he make the man say something that would make the wife want to leave under her own volition? Throughout the day, Genagio studied, and each night, he would try out his new tricks, always keeping things interesting for himself. There was one night, a party. He had learned to work his magic with a touch on the shoulder and nothing more. So, he walked around the party and with one touch, two touches, three, he was ready to leave. He excused himself and exited into the back alley. Genagio saw three forms waiting for him and held out his arms. Ladies, they took his arms and nearly tore them off as they jerked him into the shadows. He was about to command them to stop when a gag forced its way in between his teeth. It was then that he realized the silhouettes were much larger than he was expecting. These weren't the women. This him, Genagio heard. Genagio shook his head, but another wrenched him up and into the light. Yep, this is him. The men started in, working out every frustration on Genagio's soft body. They weren't merchants or nobles, willing to go through the courts to settle the embarrassment of an unfaithful spouse. They were men who had taken their crying wives into their arms, men who believed the women when they said that they didn't know what happened, men who had been watching Genagio for weeks, learning his every move and seeing him night after night, woman after woman. There wasn't any justice for them, so they were going to make their own justice. Genagio tried to cry out as he felt his ribs breaking, as fists and then boots found his eyes and face. He breathed a sigh of relief when they stopped. When he heard, we done here? He realized his relief was premature, though. 
when he saw the flash of a knife. They didn't stop until blood pooled around Genaggio in the streets. It was over. Genaggio heard the clang of the knife, and the feet stomp off. He couldn't lift his head to see them go. He could only stare up at the night sky, feeling death and the creeping panic come to find him. He remembered the first and last corpse he had reanimated, their short rebirth, hemmed in on either side by terror, darkness, and death, and the sheer horror they seemed to feel coming from it, and going back to it. Genaggio knew that heaven wasn't waiting for him. He hoped for oblivion, for nothingness. He knew, though. He knew where he was going. He had communed with the devil when he had learned his magic. He knew the cost of his art. With his final words before the darkness found him, he pleaded with God, begging for forgiveness. He knew his body was past the point of saving, but he prayed his soul wasn't. Genaggio's eyes opened to the light. His first thought was that he was in heaven. But when he felt the searing pain from his face, chest, and abdomen, he thought that he was in hell. When he saw the priest washing his wounds and changing his bandages, he knew that he was somewhere in between. His prayer. God had hurt him. He learned that he had been asleep for a week. He tried to run his fingers through his hair, but found that it had been shorn off so the priest could get at the wounds underneath. He looked down and found that he was wearing a simple habit. His clothes had been shredded by the dagger. Genaggio smiled. He had been saved. Inside and out, he was a new man. God had spared his life. And from this day forward, he would be different. For those first few months, Genaggio refused to tell anyone his name. He would hear bits from outside the monastery. How, back in the city, some young noble had finally gotten what was coming to him. That his body was probably somewhere in the river or beneath the tree in the forest. Good riddance. Genaggio couldn't agree more. He didn't correct the errors. Because, to Genaggio, it was like he died on that night. He had been punished for his sins. And he had passed through a crucible. He was forgiven by God. And he was a new man. When he was able to walk, he went to work in the monastery. He said that he didn't have anything to his name, which was technically true. All his money, his house, everything, it had been his father's. His father who was no doubt trying to distance himself from the reputation of a son who had bewitched half the women in town and then disappeared. He put that same intellect that had helped him grow in the ways of the devil to the mysteries and intricacies of theology. He consecrated himself for God joining the Christian church, and devoting himself completely to the study and propagation of God's word. He worked among the needy. He built schools, healed the sick, and no one ever suspected that the kind priest in training could ever be the monster that plucked young women from their lives to use them to his own ends. Miracles were different from his old magic. Miracles came through belief. There was nothing about his own power, but because he knew the darkness... He knew the power of the light. Through his good works, miracles, 
an inexhaustible knowledge of theology, Genagio became first a bishop, and then the archbishop. It was at this time, years after he became archbishop, and nearly a decade after he had been found dead in the street, that he heard a cry. He was up late one night, in the cathedral, praying, when he heard a thud at the door. He ignored it and continued on, but not ten minutes later, a cry found its way through the thick wood. He rose and rushed to the entrance, pulling open the doors, and finding a baby girl, shivering and screaming in the darkness. Genagio didn't look for anyone in the distance, watching to see if the baby had been taken in. He scooped up the girl and held her close to warm her. We'll see how this baby changes Genagio's life and how the good times are quickly cut short, but that will be right after this. Shinagio looked up at the girl, the four-year-old, that the priest was helping scoop stew. He had done so many bad things in his life, but even with his miracles, his church, and his position, Paz, the girl he had found outside the church on that fateful night, she was what he was most proud of. She was so sweet. He knew he could never make up for what he had done, but he was grateful he got to add something wonderful to this world by raising her. She called him dad, too. And everyone knew what that meant, that the girl who lived at the cathedral wasn't the archbishop's actual daughter. They couldn't imagine such a man as the archbishop ever doing something so untoward as, you know, breaking his vows. Shinagio raised her with love and the attention that he never had. And for a time, they were happy. And then, the invasion. They were just rumors at first. The invaders of the Iberian Peninsula, a predominantly Muslim people called the Moors, were flooding across the strait to the south from Africa. Roderick, the king of the Visigoths, had fallen, and the conquerors were no doubt swarming north, pillaging, making the streets run red with blood, heads on pikes, burning churches to the ground, you know, your standard medieval conquering package. Archbishop Genagio called his parishes together. In the face of their complete annihilation, there was only one thing they could do, flee. The conquerors were coming north, and it would only be a matter of time before they watched everything they cared about burn. Everyone they loved pressed into slavery were killed. Genagio cared about his parishioners. He loved his daughter. He wouldn't let anyone die here if he could do something about it. Every last coin from Archbishop Genagio's church and each of the six underneath him went into buying a fleet of ships, enough to take anyone who wanted to come across the sea. Which, as a quick aside, let me be super clear, was completely insane. It wasn't until much later than the 8th century that Europeans were traversing the open sea. They mainly stuck the coastlines because, without certain technology, you couldn't figure out latitude and longitude and safely navigate. Yeah, the Greeks sailed a ton, but if you've ever been in the Aegean, you'll notice that it seems like you're constantly in view of an island. At this time, if they thought about it, who knows what was out there? So that should give you some idea of Genagio's complete desperation. But they did it. They sailed. Genagio stood on the deck, and the salty air whipped through his hair, 
as the clash of what remaining Visigoth warriors remained garrisoned in the town rung out across the waves. He smiled. He had done it. They had escaped. He took his daughter into his arms and looked out on the horizon. He was ready. No matter what God had in store for him across the sea, he could take solace, knowing that he had saved his people from a heretofore unanticipated 700-ish years of religious tolerance. You see, in the year 711, a Christian ruler crossed the Strait of Gibraltar to seek help from a nearby governor in North Africa. The Visigoths had invaded from the east a few hundred years ago, and the local populations were chafing under their rule, according to legend. So, 7,000 soldiers led by the general Tariq bin Zayad landed in the south of what is now modern-day Spain, at a place called Jabal At-Tariq, an Arabic phrase I no doubt butchered, meaning the Rock of Tariq. Jabal At-Tariq would later be the source of the word Gibraltar. Anyway, the Muslim forces from Africa quickly conquered the Iberian Peninsula and made it as far as Gaul. Their consolidated kingdom would spark nearly 700 years of Muslim rule, and with it, relative religious tolerance. The conquering forces were seen as tolerant from a early medieval conquering forces standard. Not really interested in imposing their religion on others, they were comparatively more generous than the Goths. That being said, medieval religious tolerance is very different than what you'd think about when you hear the term today. Non-Muslims during this time, while they could continue practicing their religion, weren't slaves and weren't forced into special locations, they were considered second-class citizens, had to wear a special badge on their clothing, had to adhere to strict restrictions when building churches or synagogues, weren't allowed to carry weapons, marry Muslim women, give evidence in court, and they weren't allowed to try and convert Muslims. After those many qualifications, though, you have to think about it in the context of the time. We're still 82 years away from the Vikings slaughtering monks at Lindisfarne, another prominent culture clash of that century. And when the Muslim forces landed at Gibraltar, the people of the Iberian Peninsula had already been conquered by the Visigoths, a Germanic tribe that had fought the Romans when they were still a thing. I have found differing reports on exactly how life was under Visigoth rule in Spain, some saying that they were hard masters, while others remarking that they supported and encouraged the Catholic Church. But even with all the issues mentioned before, the conquering forces weren't forcing conversions, and people could continue worshipping as they saw fit. So, even though the bar for religious tolerance in the Middle Ages is not a high one, the conquering Moors, as they're called, more than cleared it. But our story isn't about what happened in Spain and Portugal. It's about what happened when Archbishop Ginagio took his people and sailed west. Remember, this was nearly 800 years before 1492. For all they knew, they were setting out across the wide ocean with nothing but their prayers to guide them. But their prayers did guide them. And, in a couple of weeks, an island rose on the horizon. As their feet touched solid land for the first time in weeks, they couldn't believe how much they had been blessed. It was green, verdant, thriving, a paradise untouched by human hands. Their very own Eden to shape however they liked. They had discovered the Azores. The Azores are an archipelago nearly a thousand miles west of Portugal, in the Atlantic, about a quarter of the way to North America they were discovered about 600 years ago by a Portuguese monk. Genaggio and his ships had found one of the smaller islands, a massive mountain surrounded by fertile forests. It was uninhabited, but resources were abundant. And as the travel-weary pilgrims disembarked, praising God, Archbishop Genaggio smiled. They 
were home. Genaggio called to Paz, his daughter. She was just beyond the portico. It took her a while to climb the stairs, not because she was incapable, but because there were so many of them. When Paz arrived at her father's study, the archbishop stood and took his daughter into his arms. Did she know what today was? Paz smiled. Her birthday. Today, she was 25. It had been a short two decades. It had been hard, of course, and they lost a few when they came ashore because virtually no one knew how to survive on a completely deserted isle. And that seemed like an oversight when it came to escaping by sea, but they pushed through. And after the first year, when their lives and food supply stabilized, they found a rhythm in this new Eden. The seven leaders, six bishops and the archbishop, came together with a declaration. Seven cities for seven bishops. They had enough that a few hundred could go with each group to found each city. The lion's share would stay with the man who had made it all possible, Archbishop Genaggio, the good shepherd who had saved his flock. He would have the crown jewel of the island, the capital. Genaggio bowed his head and thanked them, and they went to work. They mined, they cut down trees, they formed cathedrals and roads to walk between the cities. The bishops were like brothers, and all of them had unwavering respect for Genaggio's authority, so no walls were needed. For 20 years they built. And now, on Paz's 25th birthday, it was not her actual birthday, but the anniversary of the day she came to live with Genaggio, it was all finished. With the blessing of God, they had built seven cities. A paradise on earth, where people lived in peace and devotion. Genaggio's long gray beard fluttered in the wind as he found Paz by the door. What did she want for her birthday? The girl smiled, but didn't answer. Genaggio's smile soured. No, 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 no. Paz took her father's hands, rough from working the forests and fields alongside his church. He pulled them from her and looked out the window. She just wanted to know a little. She was so young when they left. What was it like before? She had spoken to her mates, but they were scared of him. Genaggio knew about the maids. They had come to him first. He said they had nothing to be scared of if they followed God's will. And by listening to him, they followed God's will. Look, why does she want to know what it was like? The stories from the word of God? Ugh, it was so much worse now, Paz. The world out there was a hard and horrifying place. Even the best of people lied, cheated, hurt others. Some murdered. In a flash... Genaggio was back in his house. He was 18 again. The corpse was flailing in his arms. He blinked and he was back. He said that some of them commune with the devil himself. And even knowing about such things, it, it changes you. This, this island, it was a wonderful, peaceful, pure place. They had been spared so much pain here. And he wouldn't have her bringing the ghosts of the past here. Paz hung her head. It would never happen for her, would it? They were all too scared of him. She would never get married. She was a woman now. She had been a woman for years. A life in a convent was one that a lot of people found fulfilling. 
But she didn't want that life. She wanted... Genaggio didn't hear the rest. He was, again, back in his youth, with his countless spells. Spells that he used to drag women from their happy lives. To destroy their happy lives with his lust. The things he made them do. The ruin that he left. He thought of his little girl. And thought of the man he used to be. He could never, ever let her come in contact with the outside world. Dad! Paz screamed, rousing Genaggio from thought. The man was back on the island, his daughter glaring at him. She just shook her head and stormed off. He didn't see her for the rest of that night, but his friends among the servants kept him apprised of her movements. Still, as he laid in bed that night, he knew this wasn't going away. As a show of faith for where God had brought them, what he had provided, the bishops ordered that the ships be stripped and used for supplies. One of the cathedrals in the southern cities had been built almost completely from a ship. There would be no leaving this island. Certainly not going back to the mainland. But what if people came here? On the nights that he could sleep, Genaggio was plagued by visions of a boat on the horizon. Of a clear day in the caraval with a cross emblazoned on its sails. There, there was an armored knight, grinning and taking paws into his arms. Genaggio stood there, in the ruins of his beautiful paradise. It had been a million to one shot getting out here. No one sailed on the open ocean. But what if someone did? What if a storm blew a ship out to sea? What if the world that they escaped came looking for them? They would remember their bearings. They would find a way back. And if not one, the next, the next, she would never be safe. Everything would fall apart. Genaggio sat up in bed, his heart pounding. There was something he could do. He shook his head now that he had stopped doing that. That wasn't of God. He took a deep breath, calmed himself. Before, before, it had been to sin. It had been because of his lust. Now, though, all these people, all these people were like sheep. They had lived 20 years in perfect peace and trust. He was doing this for them, for her. His soul could bear that weight. It had to bear that weight for his people. It would just be one more time. He had done so much worse with the magic before, and God had forgiven him. It would just be one more time. The spell was a simple one. He had the implements on hand. On the night of the next full moon, it was done. They were safe. The island and those around it were cloaked. Unless your ship was literally running aground on the island, you would just be looking at the open ocean. No matter how hard the world searched, the island, his island, would remain in Eden, hidden from serpents. As the weeks, then months, passed, Genaggio started relishing his position, his power, more and more. 
he stopped going down into the city. He was an old man now. He could rest in comfort and let those lesser than him do the hard day-to-day work. And just for fun, he started remembering more of his old tricks. He was still plagued by dreams of the ship, but knowing that his power was complete, he just laughed at the idea of that cross-emblazoned caravel coming toward the island. It always came toward it, but it never landed, and it never would land. She would never be taken from him. His island would be his, and he would do everything in his power to ensure that. Paz finally settled down. She knew the best way to get her father to stop speaking to her was to bring up the outside world. So, she let it go. She decided to be content on her island. This was her life, and she was blessed. It was a good one, a happy one. She didn't need to know what life was like before. Knowledge of good and evil only brought ruin for Adam and Eve, and it would be the same for her, too. She was happy there. She told herself she was happy there. Then, she saw the ship. They all saw it. It was speeding toward land, armor glinting on board, and its sails, its sails were emblazoned with the cross. The people were cheering and waving. Genagio, looking out from his palace, smirked. Nothing to worry about. He didn't know how a ship made it this far out, but they would never see his island. His magic was too powerful. Then, the glints on board the ship crowded toward the edge. They were looking at something. They, they adjusted their course. They were now heading straight for his capital. Archbishop Genagio shook his head and did some math. No, the people on board should be outside of range. They shouldn't be able to see the island. There was no reason for them to adjust course. And then he thought about it. Like his people, these have been led here. If they truly came from God... There was no fighting it. He sat back and hung his head. They could see the island. It it was over. Then, Genagio felt a courage rising from within him. He was Genagio. He had learned magic, necromancy, and given it up. He had survived being stabbed, only to give himself over to the church and rise until he was having dinner with the Pope. He saved his people from destruction once and he would do so again. He looked on the horizon. This could be from God, but if it wasn't, he still had time. He packed up his things and made his way to the beach. Genagio passed the rejoicing crowds. After so many years, God had brought them others. Genagio didn't acknowledge them and shoved his way past. Time was the enemy. They watched him tracing out the shapes in the sand, shrieking profane words and invoking. Genagio could feel the people crying out, screaming for him to stop. But as the sky darkened and the clouds gathered over his head, he felt it once again, the power. No one could stop him. Power surged through him as he bent even the demons to his will. The spell began to assemble itself in his mind, and he cried out that this island, his cities, would be hidden 
where no one would ever find them. Then, the clouds cleared. The presence left him, and he collapsed on the sand. With a smile, knowing that he was finished, he looked up weakly to his parishioners. You're welcome. But he looked back to the ships. They were still coming. Why were they still coming? The island was hidden. It was forever beyond their reach. Then, they all heard the first explosions. Genagio looked up. Black smoke was gathering above the mountains. Lava flowed from its peak. The mountain was a volcano, and because of Genagio's spell, it was erupting. In under an hour, the shorelines were packed. Genagio's dream came true. The cross-emblazoned sails that had been led to the island by God would never land. They would be mobbed now. So they docked offshore, where only the very brave risked the swim out into the deeper waters. Genagio didn't try to escape. He sat in his palace as the smoke choked him and the lava flowed down the mountain. Genagio died praying in a catastrophe of his own making, mere hours before his island was consumed by the lava. The few survivors that made it to the caravels told the story. Though he would never live to see it, Genagio's spell was successful. His island and his cities were hidden in a place where no one would ever find them. If you were paying attention earlier, you'll notice that I let it slip that the Azores were discovered 600 years ago, while today's story takes place almost 1400 years ago. So, after the caravel picked up as many survivors as they could and went back to Portugal, no one found the islands again for centuries. And there are some anachronisms in today's story, some I saved you from, like Genagio getting shot by a pistol 600 years before firearms existed in Europe, and some that were kind of unavoidable like caravels not being developed until the 15th century. I really enjoyed the story. In the beginning, Shinagio was undeniably terrible, but after his near-death experience, I hoped that he had changed. And he probably thought that he had changed. In fact, I do believe that it was fear, not malice, that led to his return to his old ways, those two fateful times. He wanted to protect his people in this paradise that they had built the most important of which being his daughter. No one is the villain of their own story. And Genagio might have said that he had resorted to magic because he didn't want her falling prey to men, well, men like he had been. It's always hard to say what a character's motivations are. Is Genagio like Walter White? Doing everything for his family, only to reveal later that he did it for himself, because he liked to feel powerful. Or was Genagio truly being altruistic, trying to keep the outside world away from his people and his daughter? A couple scattered points, too. Um, he was weirdly controlling of his daughter's love life. Like, I know that's a thing, but summoning the powers of hell and monkey-pawing your way into a volcanic eruption? That's a whole other level. And two, I love a good redemption story where someone tries and maybe even fails because they're human. But he kind of got off scot-free for all of his crimes. Sure, he got stabbed. 
but he never really had to answer for them in any way before becoming archbishop. Anyway, back to parenting. Look, I know parenting is difficult, but when it comes to talking to your older children, I would imagine that being honest about your faults and fears and preparing them for the world versus blowing up an island, it's probably good to go with the first one. And quick plug, if overbearing magician dads on islands is your thing, we covered Shakespeare's story of that, The Tempest, on Fictional. And, fun announcement, two new episodes of Fictional are going to drop next week. Finally. So, be on the lookout for those. If you're not still subscribed to it, there's a link in the show notes. The creature this time is the Shiraniri, the White Winder, from Japanese folklore. So, in my youth, in my bachelor years, I might not have been the best about kitchen cleanliness. Maybe things got a little messier than they should have been. Maybe towels went a little longer between washes than they should have. But seriously, I didn't know the danger that lurked in mildewed, smelly towels. Except the very obvious danger of foodborne illness to myself and others. As we've talked about, when things exist for too long in Japanese folklore, they can come to life. Dish towels or rags are a little different. Because their life threshold isn't how many years they live, but how nasty they are. So, when it's literally grown moldy and mildewed enough, your dish towels come to life. And it's not like the other Japanese creatures that come to life and just kind of dance around and sing or something. This one attacks you, and wanting you to feel the full weight of your poor decisions, it goes straight for your face. And you can't avoid it. The white winder wants to be washed. And to let you know just how bad it smells, it will take the form of a dragon and fly around your kitchen, looking for a face to wrap itself around. It'll wrap its old, slimy, smelly body around someone's face until they pass out from the stench. When you wake, if you wake, because that's the thing, next to your grimy towel on the floor of the kitchen, your next step needs to be doing some laundry. Or burning the towel. I would probably just burn the towel. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>